0: Welcome to the South Coast Christian Podcast. I'm Pastor Tom Westerfield. On behalf of myself and our entire staff, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope this message uplifts and encourages you this week. Okay, so with no further ado, it's kind of become like a a Christmas, New Year tradition to have my older brother, Evan, uh, come and speak. He is uh, an amazing communicator, amazing big brother. He's a lot smarter than I am, and so he, he, he... preaches a little different than I do. I, I kind of crack jokes all the time, and then he just drops knowledge all the time, and so get your notebooks out. Get your pens ready. You're going to learn something uh, today, and uh, the other thing I want to let you know, he's writing a book, and uh, it's not done yet, but I'm shameless plugging this book. He's writing a book, um, kind of a, an easy read commentary on the book of Job. Which is going to be so good? I've read through it and it's really, really good. So we'll we'll let you know when that comes out and you can buy it. But with no further ado, Evan, come on up, Uh, everybody. Can we give him a South Coast Christian welcome up to the? Amen. All right. All right. Well, hey everybody. Uh, To the junior hires. What what up, dog? Good to. (laughs) Good to have you in here as well. I was a little offended when you said I didn't crack jokes because, like, while you said the junior hires were in here, I was like, ah, this is gonna be hilarious. And then all of a sudden, it's like, now I can't, now I have to just drop knowledge. I can't even. (laughs) can't even be funny anymore. Um, well hey everybody, uh, I'm really excited to be here today. Like Brett said, it's kind of just become a, uh, a tradition here at the church that when, uh, when I come down for Christmas I get to speak. It gives my dad the week off and then I get to take a message and, and preach. It, it works out. It's one of those like mutual back scratching things. It, it works really well. Um, but I also think it's, it's, a, it's a fun time to get to preach. Um, if you've been in church world a lot this Sunday or the Sunday, I should say, between Christmas and New Year's, is always called Youth Pastor Sunday because it's like the Sunday that the youth pastor gets up and speaks. But I think it's um, I think it's a really excellent time to reorient ourselves going into the new year. I think that it's it's more than appropriate to be thinking about, like we we're talking about going into a season of fasting. It's a season of New Year's New Year's resolutions, and I think for us today, the the goal of this message is really well. How can we shift our perspective a little bit going into this new year? What are some things that we need to be thinking about it? So I'm going to pray, and then we'll just go ahead and jump right in. Father, I just thank you so much that uh, in the midst of everything going on in our world that we can still gather together that we can worship you the way that you deserve to be worshiped and that we can learn more about you. I pray that today as I speak that they would be your words and not mine. Um, I pray that there wouldn't be a hint of pride but that you would just use me to communicate your truth um, and that all of our hearts would be open to whatever it is that you would have to say. In Jesus name, amen. amen. All right this is a weird question but how many of you growing up remember having like a rival? Or is that just me? A couple? Okay, so this might that the last time I spoke this message, there wasn't many hands either. So this might just be a me thing. But um, and when I was eight years old in third grade, I had I had a rival. He's probably the only rival that I really remember having in my life. And and I think about it now because we're the same age, right? So he's twenty nine. Um, and he's probably, I mean, I don't, I don't talk to him because, I mean, he was my rival. Um, but he's probably, like, a great guy. Like, he's probably an upstanding citizen. I'm sure if I, like, went and Facebook stalked him, he'd have a wife and kids, and his life would be going great. Um, but, but eight-year-old me was absolutely convinced that this kid had come into my life just to bring everything that I had worked hard for crashing down. And so, it, it was, you know, we we didn't get along. We didn't vibe very well. And so I I have this memory of we were upstairs in the school cafeteria. Um, At the time, it was actually a church. The church had a school inside of it, so we did both. And he came, and he sat down at my table, and he just accosted me with foul language, like, uh, you know, obscene language that I wouldn't even repeat for you here today. Um, Well, I I will. He said, he told me to shut up. And so... And that might not sound like a big deal, but when I was a kid, we, Brett will remember this well, we had a list of, of bad words, and if we, ever, uh, if we ever uttered any of these bad words in the presence of our parents, we would be reminded what soap tastes like. And so it would be, you know, there's like the standard bad words that even today, like as an adult, you know, I, I try not to say, or like if I hear someone say it, you know, you're kind of like, oh, hey. It's a bad word. Um, but some, and then some of the words are a little bit more silly as adults, right? Like stupid would have been one of those. Like if I said stupid in front of my parents, they're like, whoa, you can't say that. Shut up. Like I already said it's one of them. Uh, like crap, another one. Like there's these kind of words that, you know, they're not pleasant words, but they're not words where even today, like I, I would necessarily worry if someone said those to me. But back then, oof, that was a bad word. And it's, it's kind of funny because you, you look back and think about it, but, but eight-year-old me, it... it it kind of clicked with me in that moment, and I was like, oh, got it. Okay, so this kid is, is a bad kid, because he used a bad word. <laughs> and I was informed by all of the adults in my life at the time that, you know, bad kids, they're bad influences, and so you don't hang out with bad influences. And so I decided at that moment that this kid was dead to me forever, <laughs> um, which makes me sound really bad. And, I mean, that's, that's, a fair, that's a fair assessment. Even now, as I speak, i realize like, I haven't talked to him since I was eight years old, so, man... That's not healthy. Um, but I've learned a lot in the 21 years since that story took place, as you, would, as you would hope that you would. But I think a lot of times I still catch myself slipping into that mode of thinking. I think a lot of times we can all catch ourselves slipping into that mode of thinking. Like how often um, when someone wrongs us do we have a tendency just to, to write them off? You even hear people bragging about it. It's interesting, I had a conversation with someone, and they talked about how, like, well, you know, like, I have, um, I have a lot of loyalty, but once you cross a certain line, that's it, you're done. And it was weird to me because the person was basically bragging about, like, not being Christ-like, but it was this whole, like, hey, like, all right, you do you. And even beyond um, people who wrong us directly, whether it's, you know, something major or something minor, even just think about how often do we you know, at church, do we look at someone who's new, they come through the doors, and, and we don't know anything about them, we've never had a conversation with them, but based off of the way they look, or the way they dress, or the way they carry themselves, um, we automatically think that we know exactly who they are, right? We, don't, we, think, we, don't, we think we don't have to have a conversation with them, we think that as soon as we see them, we're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's who this person is. We do it a lot. And I think that one of the most important values that we can have as a church—and I mean capital C, like the global church—is being committed to, to reaching people wherever they are. And that's not a—that's uh, not something you know I just made up today. Like that, this is a value that is taught all throughout Scripture. And so, in Luke chapter 15, this is where we're going to camp out today. There's a famous story, we'll get to it, but as soon as I say it, you'll know what we're talking about. But Jesus is sitting and he's eating with sinners and, and tax collectors. And off on the side, there's the Pharisees who are kind of judging him for doing this. And so when we, when we read the Bible, I think a lot of times we read certain words so often that they kind of lose their meaning. And so when the Bible is talking about sinners and tax collectors, there's very specific things that it's talking about, um, When we think of the Pharisees, we think of people who, you know, thought of themselves as being better than everyone else. They were kind of a notch above on the holiness scale, um, which in fairness, yeah, they definitely thought they were better than everyone else. Um, But then I think sometimes we think that the way that the Pharisees thought is that they were holy and everyone underneath them was sinners. Well, that's not what they believed. The Pharisees believed that, you know, there was hardworking Jews who did their best, but, you know, they weren't quite, you know, they're not quite Pharisees, but, you know, they're all right. And then there's like sinners below them. Uh, What sinners were is not... Not people who, you know, struggled with sin. That's, that's all of us, right? It's not people who would occasionally sin. A, a sinner is someone whose life was defined by the sin that they committed, right? So if, you were a, if you're a thief, for instance, your life is defined because you're, you're committing theft. You're stealing for a living. Uh, prostitutes are committing adultery for a living. Their, their life is kind of structured around uh, the idea of sin, but he's not just eating with sinners, he's also eating with tax collectors. And I think when we say tax collector today, we get in mind, you know, our local IRS agent in a suit, which, you know, not a fun guy to know, but not quite the same uh, level of what a tax collector was back then. A, a better word for, for tax collector could almost be um, traitor. And, and, and the idea of what's happening is Israel at this time, they don't rule themselves, they're ruled over by Rome, and so Rome would come in and they would impose heavy taxes on the people. It was actually like they were, you know, we, we fought a revolution over this. And there was even more in t- insane taxes than that. They're doing, they're doing this whole thing. And then the tax collectors were local people who decided to help the Romans collect the taxes. And so it wouldn't necessarily be Roman citizens who were doing this. It would be local Jews. And these are people who were essentially helping to oppress their neighbors and their friends and their family. And when we meet tax collectors in the Bible, they're almost always wealthy. Like the two most famous are Matthew, who's a disciple, and Zacchaeus, who had a song named after him, so that he, and he was a wee little man. Um, but both of them, both of them are incredibly wealthy, and the reason that they're wealthy is what most tax collectors would do, is they would collect the base amount of taxes, but then they would charge a large amount over that, and they would keep the overhead, And then they'd send the rest off to Rome. And so they would essentially get wealthy. It was was essentially government-sanctioned theft is what the tax collectors were doing. And so Jesus is sitting (coughs) and he's eating with these people. And then we get the idea that the Pharisees are off on the side and they're judging Jesus for what he's doing. And Jesus knows what they're thinking because, you know, he's God and everything. And so he begins to tell some stories. And he tells the story of the lost coin. He tells the story of the lost sheep. And then he follows it up with what is probably Jesus' most famous story in the scripture. And it's the story of the prodigal son or the parable of the prodigal son. And a parable is, is it's a way that Jesus spoke, right? He would tell stories and then at the end he would arrive and get to a point. It's, a way that we st- it's an extremely effective way to teach anything. It's a way that we still do it today. That's why a lot of... Um, like like when I was a kid, I read all the Narnia books. That's what they are. They're allegories that are getting to a point. And so when he tells about the story of the prodigal son, he's essentially talking to the Pharisees about why he's doing what he's doing. So let's jump in. In Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11, it says this. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So we're gonna stop there for a second. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about the, the characters that we've met. There's three major characters in this story: there's a father, and then he has two sons. We've met two of them just now. And what the son has done here is actually incredibly wicked. I think one of the mistakes that we make when we read the Bible is we're so familiar with stories. Like for those of us who have been in church all of our lives, we've heard the parable of the prodigal son a thousand times. We become so familiar with something that we just kind of read over it and we skip it. Um, and we don't really think about actually what happened there. Um, the, the, the prodigal son, the, the youngest son, is demanding the inheritance that his father has been saving up for and he wants it now. Um, and it would be the Similar to so, for instance, I know that uh, my parents they have plans in place that one day, hopefully a long way from now, um, one day when they're gone, they want to be able to provide um, provide things for me and a little bit less for Brett and nothing for Brittany. And so, just just kidding. But they have they have plans in place that one one day when they're one day when they're gone, um, that we'll be able to have an, an inheritance from them. But how? How wicked would it be if when um, Ashley and I are down here visiting for Christmas, I went up to my parents and was like, you know what? Honestly, Mom and Dad, I'm just, uh, I'm just sick and tired of, of waiting for you to die. Um, so I would, just like, I would just like my money right now. And it, A, it's a really awkward thing to ask. But B, it also shows um, that in, in my mind... Um, my parents are mostly just kind of a thing that gives me money. It shows that I don't care about the relationship. It shows that that is the main thing that I want out of my parents. And that's what the son is showing here. He's showing that the main thing that he's seeing from his father is just like, yeah, you can give me stuff and that's great. And then I'm going to take off. And we can imagine that the pain that this would have caused. The, the older brother who is probably his closest friend is this younger brother who's been with him all of his life. And now the younger brother wants to simply uh, pretend that none of that meant anything and he decides to, to leave. And you can imagine how how the father must have felt, who's worked years and years and years to uh, get this money for his sons. And what is money except, you know, it's it's a representation of time. Like that's what, when we work, we get money. The money that we have is a representation of how much that we've worked. And so he's worked years and years and years, and now the son is simply going to take that and, and, and walk away like it means nothing. And not only that, it says that he squanders it in in reckless living. Later on um, in the story, we actually find out that he spends it on on sinful things as well. And so it's it's not as if the son just takes his father's money, takes his father's time and and blows it on bad investments, but he he also uh, uses it to do things that dishonor God and dishonor his father. He uses that money to sin. Well, Jesus continues the story and he says, and when he, this is the younger son, when he had spent everything a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. what he has done is wrong. And it's, I want to be careful here because I think sometimes when we look at this, our first instinct can be, well, the son just wants to go back and leech off of his dad now that he's, you know, run out of money. Um, but when he uses language like, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy, all of those things are showing that no, the son actually understands the problem is the thing that he did, not the fact that he ran out of money. The problem is that he sinned against God and against his father. And the question for us would be, how would we react? And I I think a lot of us can get into the headspace of if it was our own child being able to offer grace. So let's let's leave that behind for a sec. Let's just imagine that this younger son is someone that we know. It's someone that maybe we grew up with, and then they left and they kind of did their own thing, and then they made their way back. How, How many of our instincts would be simply to say, well, you know, they made their bed and now they can lie in it? Or how many of our instincts would be, well, you know, they need to face the consequences of their actions. It's, it's, a very, it's a very human reaction, but the thing is, it's not the story that Jesus is telling. In verse 20, he continues, and he says, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. These many years have I served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so, see, the father drops everything to accept the true repentance of his son. And we can imagine Jesus talking to the Pharisees, because remember, he's sitting, he's eating with tax collectors, he's eating with sinners, the Pharisees are off on the side, saying, okay, surely this is not the Messiah, this person who would go and associate with the bottom of the barrel. And it's as if Jesus is shouting at them, like, you know, don't you get it? Like, when when I'm eating with Sinners and, and tax collectors, I'm not seeing the bottom of the barrel. I'm not seeing sinners. I'm not seeing people who should be shunned. I'm seeing people who were dead, but, but now they're alive. Like, I'm seeing people who were lost, but now they're found. It, it, when the father says at the end, this, my son, this, your brother, was dead, but now is alive, he's trying to, to kind of ram it into the older brother's skull. Like, don't, don't you understand, this isn't about getting what he deserves. It's, it's about being happy that he was dead and now he's alive, that he was lost and now he's found. I, I think so often when we read the story of the prodigal son, we, we come away thinking that the failure of the Pharisees is that they're the older brother and they, and they can't, the, the sinners and the tax collectors of the prodigal son and the Pharisees can't welcome them back in. Um, But I I would actually argue that the, the failure of the Pharisees is that they don't understand what character they are in the story. So we have this dividing line that we use for Christians sometimes. And there's some Christians, you know, they're the prodigals. They're the ones that they go out and maybe they grew up in church a little bit, maybe they didn't. But then they went out and they sowed their wild oats and they left the church for a long time and then they come back. And then we, as the older brother Christians, you know, we just need to find it in our hearts to be able to bring them back in. Uh, But, you know, we're the older brother Christians. We've always served God. We've never left his side. Um, We've been the good, faithful Christians. Big brother and the prodigal sons are going to come back as well. But he, but here's the thing: um, the story of the older brother. That's not any of our stories. Like none none of our stories is that we've just been faithful servants of the Lord our whole lives. And it reminds me of um, Peter, who of of the twelve disciples, he probably has the most public failure of any of them, well, except Judas, but we won't, count, we won't count Judas. Of the, you know, of the good guy disciples, Peter has the, the most public failing. But remember, when, when Jesus is being led out to be crucified, Peter is outside where the trial is taking place and he's asked 3 times by 3 different people if he knows who Jesus is and all 3 times Peter says that he doesn't know Jesus. <clears throat> when Jesus is on the cross and in enduring physical and spiritual and emotional pain that most of us can't even imagine. When when he needed his friends there the most, Peter was hiding because he was afraid. After Jesus had spent three years pouring his life into Peter, after he had called him out of complete obscurity as a fisherman by the Sea of Galilee and made him one of the right-hand men of the Messiah of God in the flesh, um, after all of that had happened, Peter fails miserably when Jesus needs him the most. But what, what does Jesus do after that? And I, I often say that two of the most beautiful passages of the Bible, they're, they're both written by John and they're both in chapters 21 of their books. And in, in Revelation chapter 21, we get this really beautiful picture of what um, the new heaven and new earth will be like and what eternity with God will be like. And then in John chapter 21, we get this incredible picture of the grace and the mercy that Jesus gives us every day. And after Jesus' resurrection, a lot of the disciples, they go back to the only life that they had known. They actually go back to being fishermen in the Sea of Galilee. And I, I imagine that this isn't explicitly stated, but I imagine that for Peter, um, he kind of thinks that his time with Jesus is, is over, and it's done now. And he had, he had failed, but, you know, he'll always have the memory that he helped God in the flesh that he helped the Messiah spread the good news of the gospel and and but now that torch was going to be passed on to more qualified more deserving men who were going to take it even further Peter had done his part um, but he had failed and now it was time for him just to go home and so Peter John and a few of the other disciples are fishing out in the Sea of Galilee they're there all night and they can't catch any fish and in the morning, there's a stranger who appears on the beach, and he tells them to throw their nets off the other side, which if you've ever been fishing, you know that that doesn't really make a difference. <laughs> but if you're, if you're coming up empties, casting on the other side isn't going to, it's not going to help you. But they do it. They, they throw down the nets, And then as they pull up the nets, it says that there's so many fish that the nets begin to break apart. And if it's sounding familiar to you, good, it should. Um, And then it's at that moment that John realizes who it is, and he exclaims that it is the Lord. And the Bible tells us that uh, Peter is so excited that he actually just jumps right back into the water, and he swims all the way to shore. He, He can't even wait for the boat to sail back. And after the rest of the disciples arrive, they sit and they eat breakfast, and then we get this conversation that happens between Jesus and Peter. And this is in John chapter 21, starting in verse 15, it says, And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you were old you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this he said to him follow me. See Jesus forgives Peter. And it I love this passage so much because nothing in it is an accident, right? Like Jesus goes through and he recreates the very moment that Peter was first called into ministry. Like remember, when Peter is called to be a disciple, he's out fishing all night. He can't catch anything. Jesus tells him to drop the net off the other side. He does. The nets are starting to break. John and uh, James have to come over and help out. They get all the fish and it's at that moment that Peter realizes, okay, there's something about this man. And And when Jesus tells him, drop everything, follow me, Peter doesn't hesitate and he does it. And, and now Jesus is recreating the exact same scene to call Peter one more time. He's calling him again into a new ministry. Even after his failure, Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're not done yet. And that's the whole reason why it's kind of a weird addendum at the very end of the passage. And then Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. Like for us, that's a really morbid thing to do. Um, but what Jesus is communicating there is that you're not done He's saying, like, no, like, you, you are going to serve me. You are going to have this role until the day that you die. Where, where Peter thought that he had lost purpose, Jesus is letting him know that, no, that you are never going to lose your purpose. This is what you were going to do. And I love that Jesus asks Peter three times to affirm his love. And it's as if every single time that Peter tells Jesus that he loves him, that Jesus wipes away one of the denials. And then when he gets to the third time, it says that Peter's heart is grieved. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. It's as if Jesus wipes away that final denial and says, okay, then we're not gonna bring this up ever again. And then he calls Peter back into ministry. Like Peter, for that moment, we would never think of Peter as necessarily being a prodigal, but in that moment he was. He had drifted far. And Jesus brought him back. And if there's if there's two things for us to remember today as as we're getting ready to wrap up, it's it's simply this. Number number one, um, we are the prodigal son. And I, I think that sometimes the longer that we're Christians, the less we remember that. Some sometimes the the longer that we've been alive in Christ, the less we remember how dead we really were. The the longer that we've been found, the less we remember how lost we were. The longer that we experience the the grace and the forgiveness and the love and and the mercy of Christ, the more we forget that we didn't do anything to earn that. One of my favorite quotes it's one of those weird quotes that no one really knows who said it but it is most often attributed to martin luther but it's um christians are simply beggars showing other beggars where they found bread and i think sometimes our attitude is that you know the non-christians out there they're the beggars and then we as christians we need to be generous and we need to grab our bread and we need to to give it to them Um, but that's not that's not it the the difference between us and non-Christians is just that we know Jesus. We're not better. We didn't earn this. It's, it's not as if um, one day you crossed the threshold into being righteous enough and then God was like, ah, now I love you, saved. No, none of us earned it. We're we're beggars and we're showing other beggars where the bread is. Our our salvation is not based off of what we've done. It's based off of what Christ did. And that, that, that brings me to the second point. We need to always be ready to welcome the prodigal back. And imagine for a second. Imagine that Jesus told a second parable, and the prodigal son had grown up, and he had a family of his own, and he had two sons. And then one day, one of his sons demanded his inheritance, and he ran off, and he squandered it, and he came back and repented. And then the younger son told him, told his own son, "Well, you know what? That's tough. You can go live in the servants. You can go live with the servants. You can eat the pig slop, but I don't ever want to speak to you again." How 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 wicked would it be for the prodigal son to not offer the same grace to his son that his father had once shown him, Uh, and and by extension, how wicked would it be for us to not offer the same grace that Jesus gives us every day to others? It's like the story of the servant with the talents who is forgiven a debt that he can never repay, and then he throws a man who owes him money into prison. But when, when we forget who we are, when we think of ourselves as the older brother, when we act like the older brother, when we're not accepting, when we're not trying to reach people where they are, when people come through the doors and we judge them, when people wrong us and sin against us and we write them off, what, what we're doing is we're um, taking the grace and the mercy and the love that God shows us every day and we're acting like it doesn't mean anything. See, the idea of prodigals coming home isn't, a, it's not a cool story about some people in the church. It's all of our stories. And yeah, some of our failures aren't as public as other people. Some people are very publicly uh, sinful and then they very publicly come back. Other, others of us, maybe our period of being prodigal um, wasn't nearly that much, but we all have periods of that. We all have periods where we wander away. We all have periods where we're, where we're far away from God. And every single one of us has had that moment where we were far and God loved us and he brought us back. And I, I think another thing for us too is for so many in a, so many of us, our stories are waiting on people that we love to come back as well. And so I'd encourage us as a church, like, let's remember who we are. Let's always be welcome. Always be ready to welcome people back. But let's also always be praying for those of us where we know people who are far away from God. Let's be praying that they come back as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the grace and the love mercy that you show us every day and I pray that we would never lose our perspective of that I pray that it would never be cheap and I pray that as we reflect on the truth of your salvation on the truth of where you came from where our salvation comes from I pray that we would always be ready to offer that to someone else I pray that when the world sees sinners and tax collectors that we would see them through your eyes and we would see people who are lost and can be found Pray that you would help us to always keep that in mind. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Coast Christian Podcast. We appreciate those who give on a regular basis to South Coast because through your giving, we are able to provide these resources. For more information about South Coast, including service times and ways to give, please visit southcoastchristian.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast. Thanks again, and may this week be filled with new opportunities where you can receive and share God's love.